You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same Hello and welcome to episode 305 of the Christian Humanist podcast. I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer, very excited to be hosting CHP for the first time. Uh, Here with me today are David Grubbs, an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. Hi, David. Hey, Victoria. Welcome on the show. Thank you. And uh, also Michael Farmer, my husband and a regular host of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Uh, He lives in a suburb of Atlanta with me, and we are recording on two different floors of the same house. Hi, Michael. Hello. Uh, Really excited to get started today. We're going to talk about prayer, which, strangely, uh, has never been a topic of conversation here at the CHP. And I picked a classic article from Christianity Today to get us started. Uh, It is by Richard Halverson, who was the Senate chaplain of the United States for several decades and uh, has written dozens of articles for Christianity Today. And he frames his discussion around Luke 11, 1 through 13, uh, which most of you will know as the Lord's Prayer and probably uh, is a really familiar passage of Scripture to all of you. So we're excited to break that down today. Uh, So we're going to dive right into Halverson's article. Um, It's called The Master Lesson, and uh, as I said, The lesson he refers to is the lesson on prayer Jesus gives the disciples in Luke chapter 11. Um, David Halverson goes through several parts of the prayer and discusses how they relate to the way Christians experience the world. Can you pick out a couple of things he says about parts of the prayer that stick out to you? What does he say that prayer is for and how should we use it to structure our theology and our lives? One of the things that, well, the first thing that I think is interesting is that he chose the Luke 11 Lord's Prayer and not the Matthew 6 Lord's Prayer, which is the one I know better. I I wonder if there's anything that we can make out of that. I haven't thought hard on that question, but uh, it's just something that it it struck me uh, as as an interesting choice that he doesn't really uh, explain. But by beginning with the Lord's Prayer... Uh, you know, dis, uh, Christ's disciples ask him to to teach us to pray, and uh, he begins uh, by get with with the phrase "Our Father," you know, "Pater Noster," right? And that uh, f- that f- is not just um, a nice phrase or um, a a warming metaphor, uh, but instead. Uh, Christ is inviting us to find ourselves in relationship uh, to God the Father in the place that Christ himself stands as Son. All right. Um, Halverson says that we pray uh, as children, but not in the sense that we are praying childishly. Uh, I, I think that's um, so often when we talk about Christians as as children of God, we think of childishness. Not that that that's unrelated. Christ does talk about, um, you know, entering the the kingdom like a little child. But that's a, that's a different topic. Um, when we talk about Christians as children of God, it's um, in Pauline language. It's it's language of heirship. Um, but uh, with Christ, it's uh, it's something that's been forever. All right. Uh, 
the the son stands in relationship to the father uh in in fellowship in unity um one in action and will from eternity and while we do not join the eternal son in those divine attributes he does invite us into that stance when we pray and that that is a powerful thing um to begin the prayer with and to begin uh halverson's article with the second point that he bring the second phrase that he brings up from uh the prayer is hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven and what he wants us to capture here is the largeness uh of the vision of this prayer um the glory of god's name the coming of god's kingdom the doing of god's will um these are uh, he he calls that the finest largest and highest aspirations of mankind implicit in god's glory god's kingdom and god's will um that that i think is uh is the other thing i'm i'm very often tempted to um to only pray when I feel a perceived need in my own small life, <laughs> and then to dismiss my own instinct to pray for that need as I as I think of myself as only as only petty and my needs as only petty. Um, but uh, what Halverson reminds us of is that first, our stance is not a petty stance. We stand as as children um, before the Father, which is not a petty stance. Um, it is a stance of privilege, uh, but also even even my small needs are part of this larger world, um, and may be part of uh, this this kingdom. He doesn't bring this point up, but uh, as I was reading him talk about the the largeness of Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, hallowed by it be Thy name, um, I was reminded of Isaiah six when uh, Isaiah sees the vision in which the seraphim sing, holy, 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 the whole earth is filled with the glory of God. Um, there's something about the way that, uh, there's something about that angel's song that seems to chime off of this phrase, uh, as if when we pray, we are expressing a desire for our experience to align with the reality that those angels sing. Um yeah. I love the the juxtaposition you're talking about here. So you're you're connecting a, a very small and personal intimacy uh, that that child relationship you're talking about to the largeness of God and the idea that like the way to access that largeness is through a very individual uh, personal intimacy is is cool. It it seems kind of counterintuitive, I think, in the way that um, a, a lot of the best God things do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, 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 loved, I loved the way his article makes small things big <laughs> in, a, in a particular kind of way. Um, uh, it reminds me, too, uh, that, that stance of children opening up into a big way. Um, John does that in the, the, the first chapter of his gospel, where he talks about uh, uh, the the son, um, the the only begotten, um, who is in the bosom or in the lap, in the embrace of the father. He has revealed. No one has seen God at any time, but the son, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the father, in the embrace of the father. He has revealed him. So uh, when we speak, our father. Um, we are speaking from the lap, as it were. Um, That's really, really lovely. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, Michael, what do you have to, to add here? There are parts of um, Halverson's structure that stick out to you. Yeah, um, he says that reconciliation is fundamental to prayer, and in particular that very chilling thing we pray in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, uh, which certainly seems to suggest that in, in some ways our forgiveness is um, dependent on our ability to forgive others. 
The, uh, it, it does seem to suggest that, and that is the toughest part for me to pray every time I pray that prayer, uh, and I do it several times a day. Yeah. What, what's interesting to me about that line is it's not um, forgive us our sins and teach us to forgive others. It assumes that before we would come and ask for our own sins to be forgiven, we will have already forgiven other people's uh, other people's sins. And I mean, man, that is uh, that is tough. That's a that is a. Uh, that is a that is a very hardcore section of the Lord's Prayer, this prayer that's so familiar to all of us that we uh, we may not even think about the words we're saying when we say them. But that part in particular is um, is is harsh in a way that a lot of Jesus's sayings are harsh, and I think Halverston uh, does a good job of um, of bringing that out uh, and and bringing it around to the, the the kind of entirety of the church that this is. Um, this is not just what we do as individuals, but it's what the church is in the business of is forgiving people for their sins and reconciling them to the church community, but especially to God as well. Um, and then he, he also talks about the lead us not into temptation part, which is kind of mildly controversial part of the Lord's prayer. Uh, I, I think a lot of people would argue that it has been, misunderstood because it seems to suggest that God might tempt us, which we're told elsewhere in scripture he doesn't do. And in fact, um, Pope Francis talked about changing the translation of it to be, uh, I can't remember what exactly he wanted it to, to change to, but a lot of uh, conservative Catholics were very, very upset about it. Um, and I, I guess he didn't end up doing that, maybe because of the outcry, I don't know. But certainly when we say lead us not into temptation, we probably don't mean um, that God normally is the one who tempts us. Halverson says there's a kind of bumptious security about some Christians that borders on the presumptuous sin. Jesus refused to be misled even when scripture was quoted. And it's a, it's an uh, the idea that we ourselves would not be given over to that uh, presumptuous sin. What were you saying, Victoria? Um, I was going to say what Francis proposed, um, which was approved by the Episcopal Conference in Italy, and I think has been changed in some translations, is uh, "Do not let us fall into temptation," which seems a, a perfectly reasonable thing to change it to, and I think. The people who were so upset about it uh, might just be looking for reasons to be upset at Pope Francis. Um, in, in terms of things he has said that give me pause, that's not one of them. Let me put it that way. Um, yeah, I, it certainly seems to me to be um, a, a well-meaning pastoral sentiment, at least. It is increasingly common, or at least I have heard it more and more, that that line does not refer to temptation, but it's more like put us not to the final test as in like, don't make us suffer the ultimate uh, destruction of the world or, or things like that, that I've heard that it is eschatological. Um, I have a book here by Gary Wills, who's a kind of liberal Catholic uh, scholar. Uh, the book is what the gospels meant. And he, um, he actually treats this whole prayer as more or less eschatological, including um, give us this day our daily bread, uh, which which he says would be better translated. And, you know, I don't speak Greek, and I don't think either one of you speak Greek. It's too bad Nathan's not here. But he says it would be better translated our meal still to come. Uh, and it, it is the eschatological setting, he says, of the whole prayer shows that this is a reference to the coming meal of the heavenly completion. Um, and, and so it, he, he suggests that not just lead us not into temptation, but the whole prayer is pointed toward this eschatological fulfillment that we, most of us probably don't think about uh, when we're praying the Lord's Prayer. And I'm not a Bible scholar, so I can't uh, critique that reading, but I think it's an interesting reading, especially for a prayer that has become so familiar to us. Anything that kind of shakes us up about what it's actually saying, I think is probably helpful. Yeah, I, I think that's true, too. And I, it's so interesting that just the two readings that we're getting um, right off the bat here are kind of different ends of the telescope, if you will. Like, I, I think that's so um, fascinating and, and so compelling that you can get um, two different readings that make you think in two different perspectives from the same prayer that, as you say, lots of us 
kind of become blind to because we say it all the time. Just think about the different ways that um, that, that that phrase, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, how, how many different ways that's translated. Um, Roman Catholics say, uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us instead of sin. Um, and there's a third one, too, that now I can't think of. Um, I, I grew up saying... Uh, forgive us our debts, debts as we forgive our debtors. Think about yes. how different those three things are. And yet I assume that whatever Greek word they're translating there somehow contains all three of those. And so the prayer ends up being at the same time, very simple and very rich. When I was mm-hmm. a kid, um, I was taught the, the debts version. I was taught, um, David mentioned the the Matthew 6 um, version of the prayer. I was taught that we said debts because of Matthew's former occupation as a tax collector and that it was sort of parable-esque in in terms of, like, connecting the prayer to lived experience. I don't know how true that is. That's interesting. That's what I was taught as a kid. That is interesting. Um, it makes me think of, uh, oh golly, I wish I had chapter and verse, but I just thought of it, so I don't. Um, the, the parable in which, uh, there is the, the steward of an estate who the books are about to get, um, examined. And so he's running around to everyone who kind of owes the estate money and is chopping their debts in half. <laughs> <laughs> so that when the owner comes and 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 checks the you know che- checks the money there's actually money there right. um, um I, I don't know that that's that, that that that's an exact um that's an exact fit but that that idea of of people being bound or released to obligations mm-hmm. um and how how often our sense of being sinned against is founded in our expectations of how others were to act towards us. Sure. Um, that, that kind of social debt, as it were. Yeah, that's, that's an, an interesting point. Uh, so I, I mentioned um, sort of having my thought about this prayer shaped by the way it was taught to me growing up. Um, Michael, were you taught this prayer growing up in the church and if you were, what phrasing or interpretations were you taught? And uh, you already spoke to this a little bit, but maybe elaborate on um, the ways your relationship to the prayer has changed since you became Catholic. Yeah, I mean, obviously I was taught it. It's a, it's a pretty unavoidable part of the New Testament, so I, I did know it. What I don't remember ever doing was praying it in church or being told to pray it in my kind of private prayer life. And instead, what I got was the idea that the Lord's Prayer is not a prayer you're supposed to pray, but it is a model for prayer. And so, you know, your prayer needs to include these basic pieces, and what the basic pieces are depends on the exegete who's telling you uh, that it's a a way to pray. Um, But I, I never remember being told at all that you should just memorize this prayer and say it uh this prayer or any other prayer and if you're not gonna if you're not going to memorize the lord's prayer and say it uh let's be honest you're probably not going to memorize any other prayer uh either because this is this is the big one right so i think that's really interesting that you're mentioning it as uh as a model because halverson um kind of speaks against that a little bit in uh in the article in that uh, he says that the line in Luke isn't Lord teach us how to pray, but it's Lord teach us to pray. And that there's a difference between learning to do a thing and asking for specific um, models of that thing. What, What do you make of that difference guys? I don't know how much scrutiny that particular claim would sustain Mm because when he said that, I kind of tilted my head and squinted for the benefit of no one. 
Um, because, you know, if, if, if I ask you to teach me to ride a bike, I would not expect you to th- then sit down and give me like 15 reasons why I need to go ride my bike. Um, but rather that you would teach me how. Um, so, so I'm not sure whether that, that phrasing and, and again, you know, if this is a text that's not written in English, I'm not sure whether that idiomatic difference makes as big of a difference as he says. Still though, um, the answer that Jesus gives goes far beyond just here's a model and here's some technique. Um, I mean, the things that we've been bringing up, uh, the fact that this, uh, you know, that this model of prayer imp- impinges upon intra-Trinitarian relations. It impinges upon the heavenly throne room. It touches the last times. It gets at, you know, the very heart of, you know, forgiveness between, you know, God and humanity. Um, this is, this is far more than just, you know, hey, can you show us your golf, your golf swing? You know, or give us a good, you know, a good model for our business letter. So I'm not sure, I'm not sure whether, uh, whether his precise point, I would put as much weight on it as, as he seems to. But still, I agree, this is, this is bigger than just, you know, a form letter or something like that. Okay. I, I think you've, uh, I think you've won me over. I was, I, I'm not sure I, I have a position. I just, um, was, was interested in, in hearing what you thought about that distinction because I, I couldn't quite figure it out myself. The Catholic answer is usually both and. So, yeah, you're, you're <laughs> supposed to say this particular prayer, but also in saying that prayer, however many times you say it a day, um, it is going to infuse the rest of your prayers so that it also becomes a model. Mm-hmm. Well, and we have, biblical accounts of other prayers prayed by Christ and other prayers paid, uh, prayed by his uh, apostles later in their ministries, and they aren't this prayer over again. So we know that on one literal sense, you know, in one literal sense that, uh, you know, th- those who received this teaching didn't think, well, I can never pray anything but these words precisely. Right. Um, and yet, I mean, at least as far as I know, going back in terms of in terms of uh, you know Christian liturgies of worship, that that this particular prayer has held a um, an important um, and and central place. So both and. All right. <laughs> um. David, you've you've already mentioned several other um, pieces of scripture in your discussion of um, the way Halverson incorporates um, uh, the way Halverson structures his discussion of Luke 11. He also mentions several different pieces of scripture. Um, can you talk about a couple of those and tell us what they add to his argument or how they change the shape of his argument about? Uh, what prayer is for and how we should use it. Sure. One of the places where he really settles down and starts giving us parallels is in that, in that point that we've already been kind of uh, discussing about what does it mean, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, trespasses, trespass against us, debtors, you know, debts. However, we're translating it. He settles into that and puts it in context of the uh, the parallel passage, Matthew 6. Uh, he puts it in context with um, uh, the the notion of binding and loosing in Matthew 18, um, the, uh, the the role of, of reconciliation and the mission of forgiveness in 2 Corinthians 5. And then uh, he brings in, John's first epistle, John chapter four, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And so, um, I, I think he, he's, he's recognizing that this, this dominical saying is, is challenging and it's hard to wrap our minds around what, what is Jesus 
what is Jesus pointing to when he says this, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors or whatever, however you phrase it. And so he's pulling in uh, these other texts in order to unpack the fullness of what's there. Um, namely that forgiveness is the business of not just individual Christians, but of the church itself. Um, and that in, in forgiving, we show ourselves to be um, children of the Father in heaven. Uh, one of the texts that he doesn't bring in, but which would align perfectly with his use of First John, is um, blessed are the peacemakers, for they mm-hmm. shall be called the children of God. All right. Um, that that uh, that reconciliation, that reaching across the divide of enmity, um, is something that aligns us profoundly with God and the actions of God. Um, so that when we do that ourselves, we show ourselves to be we show we show everyone who our daddy is because we act like him. Um, and so. Uh, maybe another way to say forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors is um, m- may we may we be to others as you are towards us. Right. You know? When you say that, um, it makes me think of um, what the Catholic Church teaches about the purpose of the sacrament of reconciliation and the idea that um, when we partake in it or when we when we go to confession, um, another way to sort of say the same thing, um, and you confess to a priest, the priest is sort of serving multiple purposes and, and um, embodying multiple identities at once. He is um, a, a vision of the embodied Christ who is forgiving you of your sins. And he is also a stand in for the community of the church um, to whom you are to confess. You're to have a relationship with God and your community at once. So I, I, um, I, I agree with what you're saying and it, it makes me kind of appreciate the participation in that sacrament in a different way. Yeah. I, I like I like that connection. Um, the 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 way that um, I, I I was teaching the Pardoner's Tale earlier this week. <laughs> and A great so, one. Yeah, and so one of the one of the things we discussed in class was the way in which the Pardoner's approach to forgiveness uh, was so opposite of the way it was supposed to be working, um, in which you had to go and confess your sin. And ask for forgiveness from someone who had probably uh, potentially known you from birth um, and not only knows you, but also knows the neighbor that you wronged. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, yeah, the one of the beautiful things about taking this perspective, um, not just in prayer, but on life um, is recognizing that even even. Even little sins are up against this backdrop of a heavenly throne room and coming judgment and uh, the reality of, 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 of God's nature. And, and so everything has a weight to it, um, which, is, which is also commensurate with the weight of the individual's dignity mm. when you, who, whom you've harmed. Um, so, you know, none of our sins are small sins because we don't move we don't move in a realm of small things. Hmm. Wow. That's really beautiful, David. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Michael, do you have anything to add about the other verses that uh Halverson brings in? No, I think David covered that pretty well. Okay. Uh, so let's let's switch gears a bit. Um, we've talked about the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, as a um, a model for prayer in general. When you were growing up in the church, were you exposed to any other models for prayer, um, either by your parents or or other uh, role models in the church um, that were important to you? Uh, yeah, I was and- told to pray the Hail Mary. No, I'm just kidding. Obviously. 
just, just kidding. I'm not sure I knew what a Hail Mary was. Other than the football play. Um, no. I, I, the, the one kind of scripted prayer I can remember saying was grace. And we had two of them. One of them is the one that our nieces sing on Sundays. Uh, and the other is God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. And because of that, uh, I have always had trouble saying grace because it all seems very childish to me because the only versions of it that I ever heard were these versions that are for children. Um, oh, interesting. I had no, I, I mean, I know that you don't like saying grace because I live in a house with you, but I had no idea that that was the root of it. <laughs> I, I, I was just thinking about it, and I think that must be part of the root of it, is that it seems childish to me because, I mean, my father says grace, but he says it extemporaneously. And that's what I was going to say. The prayer that I was taught to do, to the extent I was taught to do it, was always extemporaneous. And I don't know about you guys, but I find extemporaneous prayer, even by myself, but especially, especially, especially in public, very, very difficult. I, I, I don't know how to do it. I've never been comfortable doing it. I feel like on the one hand, I sound like an idiot. And on the other hand, I try to sound smart. Uh, and so um, I, I, I don't remember ever being given a model for how to do extemporaneous prayer, because I guess if you have a model, you're not really speaking extemporaneously. It's just that was that was the sort of prayer we were all expected to do. And because of that, I did it very rarely. I was very happy when in college I discovered that there were Christian traditions, not just Catholicism, but many Christian traditions that have a series of prayers that you can say and kind of make your own, even as you say them. And you don't have to worry about what words you're using because the words are given to you and you can kind of pray into them. Um, and that is still what I'm much more comfortable doing. When I would pray in classes at the college I taught at, I would always pray a collect for a saint of a day or um, just a, a regular collect. Um, I, I would very, very rarely um, pray to the moment, as it were. And when I would, if I knew I had to like introduce a guest speaker and I was supposed to pray before that, I would write that prayer out in advance just so I wasn't standing up there um, either sounding like an idiot or trying to sound smart. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if that was you guys grew up Southern Baptist too, I believe. So, I mean, maybe, maybe that's a kind of universal Southern Baptist expectation, or maybe it was just my church, or maybe it wasn't even my church. And it's just like what I took away from it. But I certainly don't ever remember being told, uh, you know, if you don't know what to pray, here are some prayers you can memorize. It would have been well, nice. I I'm a woman, so I was almost never asked to pray in front of people, um, at least in the church that I grew up in. Women did not do that. Um, we were sometimes asked to uh, help children pray um, in, in terms of, like, ask them what they want to pray for. Um, but I, I was almost never put in that position, though I, I do relate to what you're saying about kind of the, the pressure of getting the right level of extemporaneous relationship. Like I remember being really put off by people who would uh, start prayers by referring to God as daddy and oh, things I like that. That. <laughs> that just seemed kind of, kind of clergy to me growing up. <laughs> how about, how about the, uh, how about the repeated Lord? That's a, that's a kind of evangelical Southern Baptist. Uh, oh yeah. We used, we used to get in trouble for, uh, for keeping, um, keeping count of those. I, I remember having like hash mark um, Lord counts at, at church camp, um, which is probably a bad thing to do. But, but I, I think people do that because they don't know how to do it, how to speak extemporaneously and they feel like right. they have to fill the space. So, I mean, I'm, right. I'm not making yeah. fun of them exactly because obviously there's a lot of sincerity in a prayer like that, or at least can be. But I, I think it comes down to expecting people to give off these poetic, meaningful prayers um, just off the top of their head. Yeah, I, I do sympathize with, with the pressure there. And I think um, I think we, we could do better in, in unpacking these models, um, which is, is why I wanted to do this episode, partly. Uh, I grew up hearing the uh, hearing the J-O-Y model praised, um, that when you 
when you pray, you should um, start with Jesus, extolling the the largeness and and Godhead of Jesus, and then pray for the other people in your life. That's the O, and uh, that you should put yourself last in in prayers. Are you guys familiar with the J O Y structure? I've never heard of that. Now, oh man, I never. Yeah, that. That sounds like the kind of thing that uh-huh. I remember hearing from church. I remember hearing acronyms, but I don't remember any of those acronyms, which I guess kind of defeats the whole point of a memnon. Yeah, sorry, of a memory aid. Yeah, I can't say that word. Southern Baptists love an acronym. Yeah, they do. Did you ever hear uh, "grace means God's riches at Christ's expense"? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that one. That one's great. Well, it brings up the problem with acronyms, right? Which is that they are limited in their explanatory value. And so there's a kind of narrowness in even the J-O-Y acronym, which I think is probably generally helpful. But it, it, I don't know, leaves out maybe some other sorts of prayers you could do. But, I mean, anything that that gives people a a model that is not uh, outright heretical seems all right to me. I don't mean to put it down. Yeah. The, the the acronyms I'm sure are, I'm sure are helpful. I mean, if if you just if you pick up the Psalms, the Psalm is a book of songs that are also prayers. And some of them are acronyms. And some of them are acronyms. <laughs> so you know, that, yeah, there's there's nothing you know anti anti biblical about necessarily giving guidance. There doesn't seem to be anything anti biblical about being extempore. There also doesn't seem to be anything anti-biblical about um, having uh, having an ex, uh, a, a sort of ex, a, a script or a, um, a a ritual recited um, text. Like all of those things seem to be modeled in the scripture, and so I would be I would be very um, reluctant to say that any of those are. You know, are better or worse, or the things that you shouldn't do. Um, I, I, I remember being um, being taught um, that learning formulaic prayers meant uh, was, was putting you afoul of that. Um, don't pray like the heathen with their vain repetitions, um, right? Uh, forbidding in in Matthew six, um, and that extempore praying praying was more authentic because you know you weren't repeating a formula but then i realized uh, i started paying attention and you know doing the lord hash marks like you were talking about victoria realizing how much everybody said the word just when they prayed (laughs) um and that all of the deacons at the church i grew up at they all started their prayers the same way and they all finished them in the same way um right so so at what point does the lack of a formula itself become a formula right and and then I became aware as I as I was invited uh, as I got opportunities for for extempore public prayer to realize how performative I felt doing it and how not cool I felt being performative praying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I think my whole life I felt conflicted about how exactly I went about doing it, exact especially in public. I think there's a kind of sincerity trap that evangelicalism fosters. Um, Oh gosh! The the point of extemporaneous prayer is to just tell tell the Lord what's on your heart, brother. Um, And and you know there's there's value in that, but also there's value in not knowing what to pray, not even knowing what's on your heart, and Mm -hmm. saying the Our Father forty five (laughs) times. Because you know those you know those words are meaningful, and you can kind of crawl inside it and let it pray for you, and that's all right. Yeah, I am. Um, I I love what you said about sort of letting the the words pray for you because I I feel that so often. Um, I I've said before I pray the Hail Mary probably I don't know. 10 times a day, I, it's the first thing I do when I wake up before my feet hit the floor. And it's um, the last thing I do before I shut my eyes and go to sleep. And often it is because of that kind of 
looking for direction because I'm not sure um, I'm trying to make a decision about something because I'm fearful or anxious or any number of other emotions and relying on those words is to me a, a kind of reliance on everything that David was saying earlier about the, the largeness of God. So I, I really relate to that. Were y'all ever uh, presented with the sinner's prayer as a model oh, growing up? Yes. I forgot about the sinner's prayer. Oh, well, wow. Yeah, me too. The salvific prayer. Lord have mercy on me, a sinner. I mean, it's oh. right there in the text. Oh, I'm sorry. That's not the sinner's prayer I'm familiar with. That's the sinner's prayer. That, that That's what I was taught was the that's sinner's prayer. The, that's have, the, I've always heard Lord that called have, the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Well, I mean, that that is that's that's what they call it um, within Eastern Orthodoxy. But, you know, as a Baptist, you know, the sinner's prayer, you know, that we were taught, you know, it's as simple as Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Um, or Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. No, our, our sinner's prayer, I'm not sure it was scripted exactly, but it was more along the lines of, I accept you as my Lord and Savior. I don't know. But there, there definitely oh, was the I, sense in my church that if you prayed that prayer, you were saved, full stop. Um, I learned, I'm going to talk about so many acronyms today. Apparently, I didn't plan this. <laughs> um, but... If my childhood preacher is listening to this, clearly I uh, paid attention. Um, but the sinner's prayer I learned um, as the ABC prayer, uh, admit, uh-huh. believe, and commit, admit you are a sinner, believe that the Lord will save you, and commit to living your life differently from now on. And then there were other lines, but I remember the ABC part. And then be baptized. Yes. So... so- Confess, um, receive forgiveness, and state a firm intention to continue? Yes. Okay, something like that. All right. Cool. And, uh, you know, again, that's, that's a thing that's not so bad. Like, that's good advice. And I, I like, didn't remember that I remembered it yeah, until I'd, it came I'd, out of my mouth. I'd totally forgotten about the sinner's prayer. That's interesting. But you would, I remember witnessing to people and asking them if they had prayed that prayer when they said they had. I, I decided I didn't need to worry about them anymore because I really thought that the, that prayer itself was somehow salvific, which uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's what I was being taught. I think I might have picked up. Uh, can't come up with that on my own. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I, I I don't know whether my rearing is always to blame with the ideas I came out with. Right. <laughs> <laughs> sure, I, I think we're we're all pretty guilty of that to one degree or another. So, David, we've talked a little bit about um, childhood models of prayer that were important to us uh, because you've done so much reading in older texts, and you're uh, familiar with lots of voices from history and the church fathers. Are there any? models that you discovered as an adult that you come back to for comfort or guidance or other reasons? Oof. All right. Well, here comes the uh, um, backing up the dump truck. Uh, So very early on, um, as an undergraduate in an English literature course, I discovered things like Dunn's Holy Sonnets and Herbert's uh, the temple. Yeah. And I suddenly realized that there were people who had written prayers that were like a knife in my heart. Um, that were giving words for things that I had only vaguely felt that were telling me true things about feelings I'd had (laughs) and couldn't name. Um, and that's one of the ways that I discovered, gosh, I could pray with someone else's words, um, which was something that I'd known previous uh, because I, I, I'd had pastors um, who'd, who'd referred to the practice of praying the Psalms or reading the Psalms in a prayerful attitude. Um, so that was kind of something I knew in the back of my head, but I'd never really – I knew that was a thing, but I hadn't done it. But uh, early modern sacred poetry, Dunn and Herbert especially, they they were 
guides to prayer and especially the instillment of a prayerful disposition. Um, Devotions upon emergent occasions is also a really good one um, where it's all about setting the disposition of my soul and then praying out of that disposition. Um, Later, I discovered Anselm's prayers. Um, which which have been uh, helpful, and we did it. We we did an episode on Anselm's prayers. So so text to guide is is one thing. The other is um, models for um, the soul disposition of prayer. Um, uh, things like um, beads, uh, uh, the venerable beads, um, lives of the uh, of the abbots. Uh, of uh, oh yeah no wait no it's his life of Saint Cuthbert um, wh- he tells the story of of Cuthbert um, the the abbot uh, g- sneaking out while everyone else is asleep and wading up to his armpits and just sort of silently looking at heaven praying um, and there was something in that story that just just this naked soul before God that I really, really wanted, but I thought I needed to be out in the ocean at midnight to get it. (laughs) (laughs) Then I read, um, then I read brother Lawrence's practice of the presence of God. And I realized that I could be a naked soul before God washing dishes. Mm -hmm. You like that book, Um, don't you, Victoria? Um, I don't know that I've read it. Oh, you will. (laughs) We own it. You should read it. Okay. Yeah, it sounds, uh, sounds wonderful. He's the guy um, who uh, used to worry that when he was on the boat that he would fall down and get hit by a vat of something. And he decided, if that happens, it's the Lord's Affair. Oh, that's the it's the Lord's Affair guy. Uh-huh. Okay. I knew, you, I knew you found that anecdote helpful. Yeah, I, um, I, I used to think of that all the time in Minnesota when I would fall in the snow. Oh, it's the Lord's affair. Yeah. Another one is a 17th century um, a churchman named Henry Skugel, uh Wrote a little book called "The Life of God and the Soul of Man." I love that. Okay. Um, this is he talks about a couple different kinds of prayers, but then he talks about but this is one of them, a third and more sublime kind of prayer wherein the soul takes a higher flight and having collected all its forces by long and serious meditation, it darteth itself, if I may so speak, toward God in sighs and groans and thoughts too big for expression. Um, and I remember the first time that I read that and realizing I am praying all the time. <laughs> yes, I love that passage too, particularly and thoughts too big for expression. Yes. Because I I used to always think, yeah, I'm I'm not praying right or I'm not praying enough and and what he is saying is that even that thought itself is is a prayer that yeah. you know that that God is big enough to sort of untangle those thoughts and understand them and that's so freeing to me. So that's my dump truck. What what would y'all what would y'all add to the helpful heap? The liturgy of the hours is very helpful. Um you know, it's it's a a set of prayers that change in some ways every day. Some parts of them don't change, but the particular psalms you're praying and the particular reading of the day changes and I think there's I, I don't pray them all so I don't know how many there are I think there's six or seven there's there's an office of readings and there's a morning prayer and then there's three midday prayers and an evening prayer and a compliment at the, at the end of the day and um, you can get those in all sorts of apps you can buy books of them but um, I when I don't know what to pray I find that those are helpful in kind of giving me a structure and when I can't even do those, which happens sometimes, I find the Lord's Prayer and the Hail Mary very, very helpful. And um, and then when I can't even do that, there's always just uh, saints in heaven pray for me, you know, or Holy Spirit pray for me, or, you know, whoever. Um, because because I, I still find prayer very difficult. Uh, and, and so sometimes, as, as, you, as you said, Victoria, that it's, it's, it's enough to say I can't pray right now and have that be the prayer, you know. At least that's at least that's something. 
Um, I also pray the hours fairly regularly. Um, I particularly enjoy the evening prayer. I don't know if I'm I'm just a an end of the day kind of person, um, but my the evening prayer is is my favorite part of the hours and my favorite part of the evening prayer. Uh, that isn't every day, but is almost every day. I think uh, is the Canticle of Simeon. Uh, Lord, now let your servant go in peace as you have promised. Um, it's, it's one of my favorite Bible passages, and I, I find such incredible comfort in the idea that um, of um, reciting this prayer about a holy death at the end of every day. The idea that um, each day is a kind of death and the next day is a kind of rebirth. Um, makes me think of the Lord's mercies being new every morning in in kind of a, a literal cleansing way that I love. We're going to start praying these hours together again, Victoria. I'm just so bad at praying. I don't like to do it. Um, but I, I, I have to like, I, I want to get to where I force myself to do it so that eventually I like to do it. You know what I mean? Okay. I mean, I, I've been doing it alone. If you if you want to uh, commit to, to doing it, <laughs> Together again, let's uh, let's let the fact that we're putting this recording out into the world um, hold us accountable. Um, we should probably, as as Roman Catholics, say something about the Rosary, which neither one of us does regularly. Which I, I've prayed a Rosary maybe five times since becoming Catholic or since deciding to become Catholic, and um, it's still hard for me. So if, if you don't know the rosary, there's a series of mysteries you're supposed to meditate on, and they come in, it's, it's like four series of five mysteries, things like the crucifixion or Mary's crowning in heaven, the visitation, things like that. And for each mystery, you pray a Hail Mary and an Our Father and Our, Our, Lady, Our Lady of Fatima, is that what it is? Oh, my Jesus, I can't remember how it goes. See, I don't pray the rosary very often. Um, but I find it really incredibly difficult to keep track of the number of Hail Marys, I'm saying, and also meditate on these mysteries. And I know the idea is you do it for 40 years and it comes naturally to you, but uh, I gave up on it rather than getting to that point, I'm afraid. I um, I was hoping that you would bring it up. Um, I'm, I'm currently trying to get more regular at the rosary. Uh, I don't know why that I don't feel quite ready. Um, I have been reading a lot about the mysteries in my morning prayer time, and I'm, I'm sort of a lot of my prayer right now is, you know, God help me be more comfortable with the Rosary, help me fall into it and understand it, um, because I I'm a very process oriented person, and uh, and it, it kind of doesn't make sense that the Rosary isn't. It kind of doesn't make sense that the rosary doesn't make sense to me yet, uh, I guess, is, is how I feel. But I, I have been trying to, to pray through that and, uh, and think about it a lot. I assume you don't pray the rosary, David. Mm, no, but I, I was just sort of going to, you know, I, I, maybe this is something that you can take comfort in, that uh, there's, there's quite a lot of saints in heaven who never prayed the rosary in life because it had because it wasn't there. And it's not a requirement for Catholics to pray the rosary anyway. It's it's something However, that is there if you would like to do it, but you don't have to do it. Right. However, this idea that there would be a an order to your prayer life that requires a discipline to um to make internal but then becomes a second nature is something that you see uh in the lives of of in the lives of saints, especially those who lived cloistered lives, um, you know, uh, Bede, Bede in uh, one of his uh, lives of uh, the abbots of his own uh, monastery will will mention how he, these abbots are on their deathbeds singing the hours that the brothers are singing in the chapel beyond, you know, out of their hearing. But they but they've they've done it so many times that they know. What psalms are part of this particular hour on this particular part of the in this particular you know day of the liturgical calendar? Um, that uh, you know th th this is this this discipline which was outside them has become inside them. Right. 
uh, and that um, I, I, I feel as if that that is getting at a lot of the things that that um, Halverson talks about at the beginning of this article, which is that um, if if we think of prayer primarily in terms of our own interiority and our own personal need and our own authentic, sincere, just our words, we've missed all of the ways in which prayer is meant to be aligning our inside with something that is profoundly outside. Hmm. And I, I think that's why I keep praying for deeper understanding of the rosary because I've, I've been thinking so much about um, the phrase spiritual practice and, and the idea that like you have to keep working at it and you have to, I, I like what you're saying, David, about kind of connection between inside and outside and that um, spiritual discipline is, is a discipline. It's something that you have to work at. Yeah, I mean that, that's why it's called discipline. But you know, no 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 soul worth having um, doesn't require work. <laughs> Amen. Well, uh, other than than discipline and and practice, um, are there other through lines in our discussion today about what makes a good prayer? What do you think, Michael? Huh. Well, I was going to use this moment to talk about Gary Wills and the kind of eschatological function of the Lord's Prayer, um, but I, I kind of blew that and talked about it earlier. But <laughs> maybe the thing about the eschatology is the same thing about the rosary, which is that somehow in that prayer you have two minds, you know, like you're you're doing two things at once. When you when you say the rosary, you're saying the Hail Mary, but also you're meditating on the luminous mysteries or whichever set of mysteries you've got for that day. And then also sometimes people will say, hey, pray a rosary for my sick mother. So you're really focusing on three things at once. And it seems to me that, that, that there's something eschatological about that, um, that, that somehow when you pray, you are living not only your life, but you're living the life you will have in eternity or av eternity is the, the technical term for what it is because we're not eternal because we have a beginning, but we don't have an end, so we're av eternal. And so, like, in av eternity, everything happens at once. You're past time. Um, and, and prayer is in some ways a, a kind of step into that, or maybe it can be. I don't know. I've never experienced that, but it seems like that might be something that happens. Wow, that's a that's another way that we're kind of trying in our mortal humanity to be as much of Jesus as we can. That kind of both and um, embodiment that you were talking about earlier. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a good way to see it. Um, there's something there's something eternal which our prayer is always um, in the shape of, and it's something that is beyond us in the future, eschatologically, and something above us, transcendently, in the heavens, and something that is forever in the heart of God. And somehow, we are getting pulled beyond the borders of ourselves in all of those directions. And prayer does it. I'm not sure I can say it much better than that. Uh, do we do we have anything else to add about what makes a good prayer or uh, the importance of prayer to the Christian life? If, any, if anyone has any suggestions other than just do it for how to uh, <laughs> how to get better at it, I would love to hear. If there's some sort of like button I could push to make me good at it, I would really like that. <laughs> As opposed to what you actually need, which is just to do it every day. Have you ever tried, um, and I'm not sure I've ever asked you this question before, um, when I was younger and in college, when I had trouble kind of thinking through prayer, I was a big prayer journaler. I, I wrote my prayers down, um, and, and that was how I pr- 
trade? Have you ever done that? Do you think that would be easier for you? I have not, but I don't think it would be easier for me because when I write, it is a performance. You know what I mean? Okay. I can't even keep a journal. Yeah, you you write differently than than I do. That's true. Just an idea. And it's a good idea, and I know it works for a lot of people. I feel you though on that, Michael, because I, I, whenever, as soon as I write a sentence, I'm thinking about how good of a sentence it is. Um, it's very, very difficult for me to write even like a note on an index card without, without it becoming in some way performative. Anytime I've ever tried to keep a journal, I've always thought my biographer will make good use of this. Which is not a great, <laughs> not a great way to go through life. That's that's so interesting. That's so foreign to my experience of of prayer journaling. But well, as we've discussed we many people, I times, suppose. Victoria, you are a much uh, much more pious person than I am in the good sense of that word. I never like when you say that. I guess I should. Take, take the compliment. <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, I think we've probably reached the end of our discussion. Uh, David, you're leading next week. What's on deck? Well, what's on deck for next week was on deck a f- couple of weeks ago, and uh, for technical reasons, um, we weren't able to bring that conversation to you, dear listeners, but I enjoyed it so much that I was, uh, I thought, well, daggummit, we'll just do it again. Uh, it was a conversation with uh, you two about saints. All right, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to, to redoing that. I had so much fun. Thank you all. Uh, I've always wanted to say this. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. On behalf of Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and the absent Nathan Gilmore, I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger.